Hello and welcome back to the Red Sector, a podcast about speedy motorbikes. On today's episode, we have another new guest. So I'm Matt, that's Josh, that's Bunner. You don't care about us, you want to hear from the guest. You know this person from their commentary work during the qualifying and races of all three sessions. He ruled the press conferences with an iron fist. Author and former voice of MotoGP, Steve Day. That's a that's a pretty good one. That. <laughs> Hi guys, how are you? Doing? Good. good, good. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This. For the fans, to, you know, a little backstory. This has been an interview we've been trying to work out since the summer break. Yeah, Between yeah. Steve writing a book, uh, all the you know pandemonium with the uh, mo- with the MotoGP championship. It's just been a lot. And then Steve retiring from MotoGP. It's been a hectic one. So we're just finally glad to have you here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys. I know that. We were desperately trying to get something organized earlier on in the year, but um, it's been so, so busy Um, just with everything, really. I mean, you guys all know what life is like at the moment Um, with the pandemic. And then when you've got um, work, the decision to write a book at that particular time as well. (laughs) I might curse myself on that one um, for the the timing of that during the summer break. And yeah, it's just been hard work, but I'm, I'm glad that I finally get to speak to you. The first people... That I've spoken to since I've hung up the mic. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's a weird one for me because I've not spoken to anyone about MotoGP since I left. So, um, so yeah, uh, no one's interested here in this household, I can tell you. <laughs> so we're going to be testing your knowledge today. That Sorry, was like that meme we put out uh, yeah. of you and uh, Simon. <laughs> It's like me talking about MotoGP, literally everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll start this off like we do with every interview. We have some quick fire questions. So uh, I'll ask the first one, then Josh, and then Bono. Um, so first question, what track not currently on the MotoGP calendar would you like to see MotoGP go to? Uh, Laguna Seca. Ooh. Interesting. That's a. I think. Well, I'd say interesting. It is. I think it's quite popular among, amongst uh, kind of people who well it, yeah, remember if you're, it. You raise the kind of safety elements of it. Um, for me, it was a circuit that when I went to, I fell in love with the, the 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 whole vibe of it. And obviously, it's California. It's just an amazing place. That I, I think it would be awesome. I mean, from a UK perspective. I'd love for racing to, there'd be a couple of other circuits I'd love to see made. Um, but yeah, Laguna Seca is a big miss for me. I just loved it. So uh, My turn. Uh, try and be brief with this one, but it's it's quite tough because it's, uh, if you could change one rule or regulation, what would it be? Oh, within, I guess within, MotoGP as a whole, rather than just a premier mm-hmm. class kind of. Yeah, uh, and it, it could be anything as well. To be fair, yeah, literally anything. Oh goodness me! One rule I could change. If this became the MotoGP Steve Day Championship, <laughs> what would what would what would make it the Steve J- Steve Day oh, Championship? Literally struggling already. Um, I. Uh, oh. 
what I said. I know whenever we asked uh, Fran this question, her thing was that every team had to have a satellite team. Right. So even something like that. I, I think I would probably, if, it, if I had a rule right now, I'd limit the amount of bikes that one manufacturer could have on the grid. Mm. I, I second That's that. Like, yep. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, as a, it is, as a worried Yamaha fan, I second it is, that. Yeah. yeah. It is a yeah. concern, but then it's difficult because apparently didn't. I know we're, we're kind of dragging it out, but who did Rossi approach Suzuki for uh, the satellite? Nah, there team? was there was talks with Talk Ducati, Aprilia, and Suzuki. I think Suzuki yeah, I think pulled he... out the first, yeah. out the three. Yeah. He spoke to them all, but I just think that next year it's it's a little bit ridiculous. Mm. But, yeah, mean, that's my opinion, but I agree. I mean, I've got the probably the worst. <laughs> yeah, easiest question of them all. But I think for everyone okay. listening, you can say uh, the favourite football club question for anyone uh, that doesn't know. My favourite football club? Yep. Mm-hmm. My favourite football club is Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and Steve, could you quickly remind us what the current situation is at Tottenham as of right now, as of recording? Um, I, I, I mean, I will just quickly check my 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 app because I I was watching the first half just before we did this. Two to one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only as good as the current result is what I've been told. In and um, <laughs> yeah, it's so for anyone listening, two to one at halftime. Yeah, Matt is a uh, a kind of adopted West Ham fan, and Steve has mm-hmm. steamrolled the podcast with a current two one lead <laughs> of Tottenham. So yep. yeah. Yeah, so uh, moving to the next question. Four wheels or two wheels? Two. Two. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I know I answered that very quickly. I would do. I've been in bike racing my entire life since I was, well, I say my entire life, that's a lie. Um, I've been in bike racing paddocks since 1998. Um, and they, I kind of, it's just my life in so many ways. That said, I first started watching motor racing as a Formula One fan, and I still do watch Formula One. Um, but Formula One was the number one before about mid nineties when I turned about ten, eleven, and then um, bikes took over. So yeah, two wheels all the way for me. Nice. Um, motor three or one two five. Uh, I used to be such a two-stroke freak. Um, <laughs> so if you'd have asked me this maybe five or six years ago, I might have said a different answer. But right now, I'd say Moto3 because I think that um, although there are clearly some problems that need fixing um, in the class, I think that just the entertainment and excitement of it is just it's ballistic. It's just mm-hmm. it's box office entertainment every single weekend. So, um, yeah, Moto3. Okay, moving on to the next one. Again, I, I think I've picked the worst role here out of them all. As I've got, I Coke think I'll start Pe- going third. Yeah, yeah, I've got Coke or Pepsi. <laughs> this, I think apparently, according to Matt, this shows a lot about your character. It, it does teach you a character of a person by what they choose. Really? Okay. I think it does. Okay, well, um, I would go Coke over Pepsi. Nice. 100% success rate so far. I think we're waiting for the first guest to say Pepsi mm. and Matt freak out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, the one freak out just like, oh. 
<laughs> so uh, next one, four stroke or two stroke? Um, it's a difficult one. I mean, two strokes were just legendary, and I I just love that era, and I love watching the, and I love the motorcycles themselves. Just mm -hmm. beautiful machines. Uh, the prototype side of that I love, but because I've spent so much of my life in the four stroke era, it's uh, I'm a bit torn on that one. Um. What are we talking about? Just from my fave, what I prefer, or yeah, your personal preference. I'm gonna have to go two stroke. It's in the heart. I can't. I can't stop it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, Moto two or two fifty? Move up the class here. Oh, I could get in a lot of trouble with this answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, two fifty. Ooh. Mm. Again, um, the most unprofessional question of them all. Hot or... Uh, I think iced or hot drinks. So hot, co like, you know, hot coffee, iced coffee. Hot coffee, iced coffee. Hot tea, iced tea. Right, okay. So bearing in mind, I, we, I mean, <laughs> in the UK, we don't drink a lot of iced tea or coffee. Um, if it was between iced coffee and iced tea or hot coffee or hot tea, always hot. Um, but I mean, if we're just talking drinks in general, then I prefer cold drinks over hot drinks. So I don't know where you want to go with that one. So <laughs> I didn't uh, write the questions to be fair. Yeah. So. Nope. That one was me specifically. <laughs> and really, you've, you've really sort of got the raw end of the deal with you. Yeah. I've, I've pulled the short straw on. The <laughs> like list, I said, I'll start know. going third from now on, <laughs> uh, inline four or V4. Hmm. Uh, do you know what? I, I love both so much, um, but from my time riding, I loved the inline four. I loved the scream of the inline four um, from back in the day. I'm inline four. <laughs> nice. is over here, like, doing a little celebration to himself. <laughs> the first one to say inline four. I love this. Um, and for me, I'll mix this question up a little bit. Um, 500cc era, 800cc era, or 1000cc current era? And I know why Josh has said that, because Josh loved the 800 era, yeah, and that's not in the question. Was... It's not in the question, but I knew as soon as you said, I'm going to mix it up, I was like, I know he's going to you slip know, I loved all three, because... Um for different reasons but maybe more for riders than actually the the, the mm. bike um I, I have to go for 500 cc just because they're just awesome they were just awesome machines um and i and i i only i only i had the chance to commentate on 500 cc racing so um i'm gonna go 500 cc there's a huge tip of the hat with a lot of your like picks with nostalgia, isn't there? Like with the like growing up with the two strokes and the two fifties and five hundreds and yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I think that it's just the same as any anything any sport with anyone. I think what resonates with you when you initially got your passion, um, mm -hmm. I think it just always sort of it's just installed. It it, it doesn't go away. It never goes away. So. Um, yeah, it definitely the nostalgia is there. 
Yeah, and the final one is orange sectors or red <laughs> sectors. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know where you're going with this one. Um, really? How did you guess? <laughs> uh, I actually preferred orange back in the day. Uh, oh. I'm just so used to red sectors now that it's kind of just completely and utterly programmed in my brain. Um, <laughs> so I have to go red. You have to go red, or the, the podcast would probably have to end there, Steve. I'm yeah. Like, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, now that those are over, uh, we wanted to you know, get to know you more. So you mentioned it a little bit in the end of uh, Quickfire. As you fell in love with F1 first, like where did you get your love for motorsports? Um, my dad owned a car sales, which is a pretty good place to start. Um, he was a, a I'm not going to say a dodgy used car salesman, um, but he was a used car salesman. And so four wheels was always just what it was for me. As a kid, I loved um, being around anything that had wheels. I had toy cars. Um, and Formula One was just everything at that particular time. And my dad loved it. He used to go with his friends. He took me when I was a kid um, to Silverstone. And so it was just ingrained in me from a kid. I, I used to just love it. Um, and I just fell in love with motorsport so much. And it was only when he bought a motorbike and then he uh, took on a salesman, actually. He used to race in the UK in the 80s um in 250s against the likes of foggy and stuff and he wanted to do a club uh he wanted to return basically and do some club racing and it all just sort of kicked off from there um so the love of kind of engines and just anything cars bikes just has always i think been in me without really realizing um there's videos of me I don't know, in front of a TV, I think, uh, in front of a Formula One race, yapping something, I don't know what. Um, so it's, it's always been there. Um, yeah, just I, I just love it. So Formula One was the, definitely the first love, there's no doubt. And that was obviously during, I mean, I was born in 84, so let's say from the age of four or five, I kind of started watching it without obviously having the proper interest. So we are talking like, Mansell, Senna, then I'm going to say, yeah, born into the Prost yeah. Senna era, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's some introduction, though, like in terms of, it was. you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And going to my first ever Formula One race I went to, you know, I got to see, um, you know, Senna, Prost, or, and at the time you don't really kind of think about it. But now you look back and I feel so privileged that I got to, to watch that. Um, so yeah, really, really lucky to be born into that era four wheel side. Anyway, uh, it was, it was fantastic. Who's your, uh, main hero? Just so before Josh asks a question, who's your, who's your main, when you were a kid, who was the guy that you were like, that's my guy. Like who, who's your main idol? Um, I, I don't know whether it was just because my dad was so quintessentially British, um, or not that <laughs> I, I kind of favoured Damon Hill. I don't know why. I just loved Damon Hill when he first came on the scene. I liked the fact that he had a bit of a bike background as well. Um, and it was, I, I like, I don't know. I think the, the fact that 
his dad had passed away. I felt sorry for him as a kid. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted him to do well. And so I'd say that he was my hero. I really respected Schumacher. Um, and Senna was obviously just a, a, a genius. Um, but yeah, I'd say my favorite Formula One driver probably from back then was, was Damon Hill. Interesting. No, not, not one that everyone would go for. Mm. Very interesting. So of course, as you were growing up, you eventually, what did you say you were 11? You were, you transitioned into, um, kind of more to the motorbike side of things. Was there any, is that because of certain personalities in, in motorbike racing at the time? Or was it more because if you love for motorbikes started to take over from your four wheel love? I mean, I think the fact that dad bought a motorcycle and took me on the back of it and it was just a thrilling experience and then took me to a motorcycle event where there were not 60 lap races. There were these hard charging short races. It mm -hmm. was just watching these guys as a kid, um, you know, age 10, 11 was just in, insane. And we used to go to British Superbike races. And then we went to, I think, after that for a couple of years, let's say running up to the age of 12, 13, 14, was so happened to be like the peak era for World Superbike. So we'd go to Brands Hatch and it was, you know, we was in, we were like sardines at Brands Hatch. could not move on those hills. Um, watching Foggy, Corsa, Kaczynski, everyone. It was just insane. And the atmosphere and it was just something about the bike side of stuff that I just felt like this was definitely the the place for me. It, it made more sense and I just loved the racing. I loved how close it was. And then after that, it was just, you know, you go to bike shows, you want a motorcycle, it just goes and goes and grows and grows and grows. And next thing you know, you know, you're just completely and utterly smitten. That that was basically how. Yeah. I mean, so... listening to you say those names there, Steve, is like what I kind of say to myself now is that like, it's very upsetting seeing Rossi, Lorenzo, Pedroza, Stoner and whatnot finish. But in 10, 15 years' time, like Marquez, like the fact that, I mean, it's a given now because he's still riding, but like in 10, 15 years, when none of those names are even in the bracket, to have grown up watching them win in the, and see it in the flesh is like, you know, we speak about it because obviously Matt is so far away from even Cota to even go to a race. I feel then so privileged to have watched Rossi win, Stoner win, Pedroza win. Marquez win like these are names like you saying there Kaczynski Corsa Foggy like even those three in BSB is like they're they're some names just in BSB and then you go into F1 and you're like you know Senna Prost it's like yeah there's some names that you just pulled out the bag there to have seen in the flesh yeah I was so lucky I mean from there obviously I went to Grand Prix racing and started watching the likes of Rossi's um, and, and everyone battling away, the Biaggi's and the, I, I was so, so lucky early on. And at the time you don't sort of grasp that, you don't really understand that you're watching these absolute legends of the sport compete. Um, but then to sort of go on and, and commentate as well was just another level because the names you've just mentioned there, you know, when I worked for Eurosport for a stint and covered Toby Moody because he couldn't make certain rounds. And while I covered Toby, I got to, to, to commentate on Casey Stoner winning 
Valentino winning, Danny Pedrosa winning, Jorge Lorenzo winning. And that will forever be in my memory. I'll never, ever forget it because, you know, they were the aliens, uh, you know, of, 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 of that time. The sport's got so much to look forward to. I know there's probably lots more that you guys want to talk about regarding that, but, um, I, you know, it's just been, uh, yeah, I, I definitely feel lucky now that we mention it. To be honest, until we'd really started speaking about the Formula One side of things, you know, when I look back now at the Formula One, the British Superbike, the World Superbike, um, yeah, definitely I was lucky to have witnessed all of these things live before I ventured into TV, that's for sure. Yeah, so when did you start racing? Like, what got you, like, what made you decide, like, I actually want to race these, not just watch them? Um, when we, uh, my dad ran, ran a team for a little while with the uh, one of his salesmen, as I mentioned. And um, about a year after that, a family friend um, had a son who was starting to race in the Aprilia Challenge, uh, the 125 series which ran in BSB and I was so insanely jealous uh, just like in awe of him I could he bought I, he came over to us with the leathers that he was gonna wear and just showing us everything and I was like oh my goodness I've got to do this and um, and dad managed to source a bike actually from Terry Reimer's dad um, a one to five and I'd never even at that point I'd only ever ridden, a, I was uh, 15, I think, at the time, and the only thing I'd ridden was a moped. No gears. <laughs> wow. And, um, and we bought this bike, and, and literally, without any practice whatsoever, next thing I know, I'm on the grid at BSB in the Aprilia Challenge, not really knowing what to do with a geared motorcycle. Oh. <laughs> with... Casey Stoner, Cal Crutchlow, Chaz Davies, wow. all in the same class. I'm guessing you got on the podium then, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was, it was a crazy, crazy start. And that was, I, I just, I had to do it. I wanted to do it. Um, but I picked a really, really bad time to start. That's <laughs> <laughs> when you... When you got into commentating and you like you saw them again, did you like go up and be like, "Fuck you guys"? <laughs> um, like I could have been someone if you guys hadn't been there. I was. I, I, don't, I knew um, within a few years. I knew that I was never going to be um, a world champion. I knew I wasn't going to be anything special. And we had a real big decision to make in terms of whether we go club racing and do it for fun because there were, we could go to club racing and pick up a few trophies or whether we just say, look, this is getting ridiculous. And then I started getting hurt a little bit and then it cost so much money to do because we went through 600s. But again, every, each year I went up, the same guys were all coming through, you know, and it wasn't getting any easier. You'd go from racing those guys to being in British Supersport against Kyle Harris, Stuart Easton, Tom Sykes, Cal again, Jim Moody, Craig Jones. And it was just never ending. Um, and you just, it was just like a case of saying like, this isn't going to work. And when I started commentating, um, quite a few of them ha had a few jokes to be fair. Ch the first thing Chaz did, Chaz Davies did was send a photo of him lapping me in my first ever round. <laughs> <laughs> that but, sounds about right for Chaz Davies yeah. to be fair. But every, yeah. 
Huam was really, really good about it. And and I think the fact that because I'd done it, um, they had respect for me for that. So I didn't have to sort of have that moment of breaking the ice with those guys in particular. It was mm-hmm. uh, easier to, to do on that front. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't thank them for whipping my ass on the regular. <laughs> So when you moved into commentating, did you find it? Did you find it a lot easier to get into because you'd you'd raced? Did you? Was there was there a sense of when you first started commentating? Was there a sense of imposter syndrome, or was or was it quite fluid and slick into it? Did you feel like I I know what I'm doing here, and you know obviously you know what you're talking about, but did you ever feel like you know do I know like do, do I feel comfortable here or? I think like any sort of. After I finished racing, I was still the same person on the couch watching the racing, screaming at the screens. Um, and I think like anyone, you feel like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to the crunch, you're not sure. And not, um, I wouldn't say I'm a particularly confident person and I've not got sort of a, um, an ego about me to believe that, oh, yeah, I'm going to be the best in the world or this is going to work. So I was really nervous about it, to be honest. Um, one thing I did have on my side was the fact that during school, I was always really intermediate. Um, I always wanted to be on stage. I always wanted to have a microphone in my hand. And even when I want to have my mates, I always wanted to sing on karaoke. And so confidence of being able to speak in front of people was not a problem. Um, but it was about trying to kind of mix the two. Um, and so to begin with, I was definitely nervous. There's no doubt about it. Um, and even now, up to the last race that I do, you know, I, I believe that every day is a learning day. I don't believe that anyone is a complete commentator. Mm. I think ways improve. Um, and, I, and, I, and I still get nervous and I still question myself about a lot of stuff. So I felt like it was a right fit. It was a better fit than me racing. Certainly hurt a lot less. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I came I came into it thinking, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to be the, the job for me for the next sort of 10 years, let's say. Yeah. When you uh, stood in for Toby Moody, was that when he was alongside uh, Julian Ryder, was it? Or yeah. Was that absolutely hell? <laughs> yeah, well, for me, this was a really weird one because I started working um, at Eurosport and, and I made it quite clear what I wanted to do and I wanted to just work my way up. And I said, yeah. I wanted to do racing. But I mean, Toby and Jules were just the holy grail at that time. Yeah, They were the guys I listened to week in, week out. I idolized them. Um, and I was doing, I literally would do anything for Eurosport at that time. Like anything they called me to do, I was going to go in and work because... Yeah. I needed to try and find a way of learning and improving. And then I just got, I rem- I'll never forget the day I got a phone call from um, the, the boss there who said, Toby can't make Indianapolis in 2011. We want you to commentate alongside Julian Ryder and Neil Spalding. You're going to be leading. <laughs> uh, My God. And, and, you know, I was what, 27 years old um, and I nearly dropped the phone. Just <laughs> My girlfriend now my wife at the time and just couldn't believe it just could not believe that I was going to be doing it um and I I can honestly say that I don't remember a single minute of it really was it that 
Did you ring Toby beforehand to, to ask for like I like I, anything, any advice or anything going into it? Did you? I, I I spoke to guys at Eurosport and I spoke to Julian and I can honestly Julian was so so helpful. He was unbelievable. He was just a dream. Um and from there, Toby went on to do like British touring cars. Yeah. Which clashed. And so it turned out I was going to be doing about eight or nine rounds over the next couple of years. And then I went on my first on-site Grand Prix with them, which was just the most unbelievable experience. Um, but Julian, I owe everything to because I learned so much from him and he introduced me to everybody, literally everybody, every rider, uh, every person in the paddock. Um, he, he was just in such an encyclopedic knowledge of the sport and everything um i felt so comfortable um and i loved every second of it so yeah it was it was such a, an incredible experience i'll never ever forget it that feeling of knowing i was going to commentate on moto gp i got absolutely crucified luckily social media wasn't quite <laughs> yeah, yeah imagine uh, quite quite 2011 twitter had begun but it wasn't really yeah, it was um, I mean, I got crucified just alone just for, for that weekend. I mean, if that happened now, I think um, I'd probably have to just come off social media altogether. Yeah, I honestly hearing you say that about Julian Ryder and being, you know, speaking that highly of him. I even though I've never met Julian Ryder, I can I can almost sense what you mean in that like. He's very, he seems very warming to even listen to because I listened to him literally from like as long as I can remember early 2000s when I started watching to when he finally like stopped commentating on MotoGP. I think it was 2016 when he stopped, 2017 sort of time. And informative is like probably that much of what he actually is. Like the, the guy, what he doesn't know is not worth knowing sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and to have him as a mentor next to him must have been so good. Like, of all the people, I think he was probably the perfect guy to have for you. Oh, he was, yeah, because he had um, no ego and he made me feel welcome. And, and what I found out quite quickly in the industry when I came into it, which you don't realise when you initially go into this industry, is that there are... I mean, it's, it's like all walks of life, really, there, there are some assholes basically around. Yeah. And again, wherever you go, it's just that's just the way it goes, and you don't know how it's going to come across. And Toby and Jules were just so loved and adored by everyone. I was worried that uh, it maybe just from a personal point of view, maybe they're going to go like, "Who is this jumped up little so and so who's coming in to you know." think he's going to be a commentator, blah, blah, blah. But, to uh, but Toby obviously not being there. Jules didn't take that, that angle at all. He just, he, he came straight in and he was just so helpful. Um, yeah, I owe him a lot. He was a fantastic mentor. He really, really was. I learned a great deal from him. And what, what was it that actually, I mean, I know you said you, you started working with Eurosport, but what, how did you get into that? Like, what, what made you, A, go for that job, and B, what was that process like? Were you going for a completely different role? I mean, I know you were saying, like, you always were confident with a microphone, and that was basically, like, the goal. But, like, how did that all sort of piece together? Well, I was, I was very, very lucky um, because uh, my dad, from me finishing racing, got involved in a grassroots racing series in the UK, 
um, called Thundersport GB. And when I was working as a car salesman um, for another company, he basically just contacted me and said that at the weekends we are going to be doing some TV. Um, we need someone to mess around with a microphone. Do you want to do it? So um, I was like, yeah, let's go. Um, and a couple of their series got covered on Eurosport. And so I just kept on bashing the door down with them uh, for about a year and a half. They said no so many times. Um, so I, um, from there, started knocking on the door at Eurosport and they were fantastic. Um, they offered me a chance to commentate on, <laughs> of all things, um, the, the lead, the, the guy who decides who does the commentary there said to me that, um, look, we, we, we don't have anything in bike racing at the moment, but we're going to send you um, to do some biathlon um, and winter sports. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we'll see how you get on. Um, which was a baptism of fire, to say the least. The irony for winter sports as well. Um, because I, I did, really didn't have a clue uh, what I was doing. Um, but that something obviously worked, and I don't know what it was, but um, I just kept on plugging away, kept on accepting the work, and um, yeah, eventually it just sort of all came together. Because obviously with World Superbike Clash rounds, um, Jack couldn't do every single uh, World Superbike gig at that time either. So I was doing World Superbike cover for Jack, MotoGP cover for Toby. Um, so it was a perfect scenario. Yeah, so uh, on top of not only commentating MotoGP, you know, World Superbike here and there, you're the voice on the video game. What <laughs> is that? What is that experience like? Is it you just sitting in a room for, you know, reading so many lines and like, bye? Yeah, that was a really strange one because um, when I first got offered to do that, um, it was really cool because I, I used to play on the PlayStation so much um, as a kid and even probably up to not that long ago. <laughs> um, so, I, uh, yeah, that was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, I went to um, Soho initially to record that with a recording company i got basically given a script um by milestone who were running the game um and it yeah it was just a case of i had no input in the script so that was the only downside because there was there are still even to this day some lines in the game that i i'm like i would never say that <laughs> yeah i think cause it, it was keith wasn't it who was who voiced Keith did like a couple of yeah. and yeah. a few others. So I think maybe the obviously that I don't think they changed the lines much or it does it does it, some lines are outdated from the games, I think, but yeah. Yeah, initially I when I when I got contracted it was for the American game only and then um it changed and it was gonna be for all sort of English speaking nations. Um and so yeah, I had to go into Soho initially to do the first one and read through lines and just repeat them over and over and over again um and then there was an update a couple of years ago where i had to go back there um but yeah nothing nothing since then um and obviously i'll be very surprised if my voice is on again um from <laughs> and next year onwards but, no it was a really cool experience to be honest just to 
Um, I, I'm not sure my wife agrees when I brought the game back home and I was playing it. <laughs> it's just your voice over and over. No, she was not impressed with that at all. Um, but yeah, it was it was different. You know, there aren't many. I, I guess there's not many people that can say they had their voice on a, a PlayStation game. So I, that was mm-hmm. a cool moment for me. So yeah, that was that was nice. Yeah, I uh, I quit playing the game because I I do sim racing. So I have like a whole chair and steering wheel and everything. And I've been focusing on that. And then it was like, I think it was just last week. I hopped on and I heard your voice and it was like, I I was sitting in a chair. I had this moment of like, oh, that's right. I'm not going to hear him anymore. I guess it's the only time I get to hear Steve do commentary anymore. And like, I just had to sit there. Like I put the controller down, looked around like, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, I, I would just like to say, Matt, that, I mean, I'm only 37. So that, you know, to, to say that you'll never hear my voice anymore is quite drastic. Yeah. But it was just like I it was like that moment because I hadn't played it in a while. And then with the season being over and like that was the first time I'd heard your voice since the season. And I'm like, oh, shit. It's like, <laughs> it was, it was like... sounding a bit sinister when you were like, this was the last time I'll ever hear him again. I was like, Christ, where are you going with this? When Matt's having a bad day, he'll go home and he'll, he'll just boot up his PlayStation <laughs> just to listen to your voice. And he's, he's back yeah. in his happy place. Yeah. <laughs> Brings his kids around the TV, like, listen, kids, this is this is your uh, this is your true hero, this man right here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just on that, it's sort of like it is a bit weird to think, like, I don't know, like, how did how did becoming an author come into? Because from the outside, obviously, we don't know how long you've been doing that sort of thing, which you could probably elaborate on in, in a minute, but like. It was so weird going from like, oh yeah, he does commentary for GP, and then it was like he's finishing and a book. I was like, whoa, like where did all this come from? I was like, what? Like it all came about so so quickly. But was it just a an easy transition? That sort of, I mean, obviously leaving GP is a big thing when it's been your life for how long? Well, it's been a, it's been my life for a long time. I mean, I worked for Dorna for seven years and. Um, before that, obviously, with Eurosport for a little while, I did. But, I mean, I, I should just, first of all, make it quite clear that I'm not leaving MotoGP to become a children's <laughs> okay. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in the future. Um, and, and it's been an enjoyable experience. The, the thing with the children's book was quite simply um, having a, a little boy and reading to him kind of rekindled something from me as a kid where I remember really enjoying picture books and I used to be quite creative. I used to like writing, I used to like drawing and illustrating. Um, and we, we had a few books and I just thought, you know what, I wouldn't mind trying that at some point, but you just never get the chance. And then boom, lockdown happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just kind of just the, the best opportunity for me. Um, to have a go at something different because none of us knew at that particular time how long we were going to be in lockdown for, when is MotoGP going to start again. So, yeah, I just put pen to paper and thought, well, let's just crack on with this and see what materialises out of it. I didn't necessarily think anything would come of it to begin with, but um, we, we sort of powered through with it. And, yeah, it's, it's completely different to, to anything I've ever done. And it is a completely different world. I mean, 
Everything in MotoGP, not just on circuit, but off it as well, goes at 100 miles an hour. And everything in the book world goes at about two miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it is a different world. Um, but it was an enjoyable one. And I've, and, I, and, I like, and I've enjoyed it so far, the process. And I'm going to trickle along with it and see where it goes. But um, I'm not putting too much emphasis onto it. I mean, I'd like something to come of it in a way because I enjoy writing them. Um, but it's not easy, like anything. You can't just waltz into a new world and just make something happen. And I'm not um, naive enough to believe that I'm going to be some sort of overnight Duggan's sort of success or uh, challenge David Walliams for, uh, you Excellent. know. Or whatever it is, yeah. The next yeah. Michael <laughs> Mapurgo. So but we're not expecting a feature film. We're not expecting a feature film anytime soon. No, 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 I don't think so. No. Also, I think the thing was, um, initially, it was, for me, the, the, the chance to write a book that um, was released that my I knew my son would read was something really... Um, so even if it only just came to that one book, that he'll forever have that. Um, and it's, you know, in his honour. And there's a mm -hmm. photo of and me in the front of it. And so that'll always be for him. Um, and that's just something that really means so much to me. And then, I don't know, if we go on from there, then then who knows? But yeah, it's just something, it was just something that happened. And when you've got time, like we had in lockdown. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah obviously a very proud moment for you, but not to like burst the uh, the nice bubble. But be honest with us, Steve, how many times have you read your book to your son? <laughs> be honest here how many times come on um when it when it first when we before it had been published before it became a book um too many times um because <laughs> I, I really really wanted to believe that he would like it um, he's got like an irrational fear to leopards now is what you're saying like... <laughs> he's he's now he's going to be three in february um and so as um matt you have kids mm-hmm you know, they yep. they change so quickly. I don't know if you guys have kids. No, no not yet. I'm 21. Uh, I'm not uh, ready for mind, that yet. Mind you, mine are te 11 and 9. Okay, so you might have to just cast your mind back a bit. But, I mean, when yep. they're that, they, they learn so much so quickly. Mm -hmm. And it is unbelievable. And Char my, my son Charlie reads. We love reading to him. He loves reading books back to us. And so it was really important to me to kind of understand before I went fully in with it, whether or not he was going to engage with it in any way. And so I read it to him a lot before it was completely finished. And yeah, I mean, obviously when the book first came out, I mean, <laughs> he would go to bed and he would say, okay, it's a bedtime story. And I'd always put that to the top of the pile. <laughs> and he's I like, I, I was he's say, like, read, read one fish, two fish. And you're like, or yeah, exactly that would you like to read that um and to be honest like all kids they go through phases and to begin yeah. with all over it and he loved it and then it was just like i'm done with that dad i'm not bothered about it i don't care <laughs> me in the front and i know it's me um and so it was just completely cast aside and i'm not the type of parent that's going to force it on him but right. just just recently he has been picking the book up and reading it to me and my wife, which is quite a cute. Um, so I'm just going to leave it at that. 
and and see <laughs> see what happens over the next um, over the next year. You have set a precedent now, and yeah, you've set a precedent now. So if you if you end up having another kid, there's another book, <laughs> and so on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to debate it. Yeah, I have. I've got myself into a bit of a pickle there. That's for sure. <laughs> Because if you have a second one, the second one, you'll be like, well, where's my book? You wrote him one. Where's mine? I'll just have to say, like, okay, uh, he's got uh, – you get a tattoo or something like that. You know? tattoo. <laughs> and if Charlie writes number two is what I was saying, then, you know, then the next kid, if you do have another kid, is going to be like, well, he wrote number two of his book. You need to write number two. Or you need to give yourself a tattoo, the second tattoo. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'll, well, I'll come to that when it when it happens. Who knows? Who knows? But, <laughs> but uh, like, w- what is that process like writing a book? Because I'm sure, it, like you said, you know, you while well, you sat there and had t- all the time and pand- like during lockdown, you know, and you said it moves so much slower. Like, how how does that whole process go? I can say this that. From reading books to my son to the decision to decide to write one is really easy because mm-hmm. you read books and you think, I can do this. And then <laughs> you just go, yeah, here we go. And then it all becomes reality. Um, even writing a 32-page book with not many lines on each page is so difficult to do. Um, and making the story all come together it's very, very difficult. Um, it's got to be co- coherent, hasn't it? And you, the kid's got to understand it and enjoy it as well. So yeah, that's, you... you've got to make sure that it's completely there. But also the thing as well is that after you've written it, you might think it looks good. And your family and your friends might think it looks good. But you need lots of other opinions. Um, because everyone's going to support you who's near to you. Um, but... I like to think that I'm pretty self-critical, to be honest, and um, I would look over it, and if nothing, I'm quite meticulous. If, if it wasn't absolutely right, then it wasn't going to go in. Um, but it's so difficult. It is not an easy process. It is not something that you can just do and finish. I mean, I started it at the start of lockdown, but I didn't finish it until Christmas of that year. Well, that's it. Obviously, because MotoGP kicked off in July, um, and we had fourteen weekends in eighteen, yeah, have a lot of time to write books. In yeah, mm-hmm. it probably wouldn't take that long. But um, yeah, the process is is not as easy as I thought it would be. As it shouldn't be, because I mean, if it was easier, everyone would be doing it. I guess. That's, so. That's yeah. So um, going from books back to bikes. Um, in terms of this this MotoGP season we've just had, your what were your overall thoughts on it then? Do you think it was a, a good season overall? Um, because you know I've I've I really enjoyed it. Obviously, we this is the first season we've done this podcast, so um, you know having this alongside the season has just been incredible. But the racing as well and and the the stories that have come out, it's it's been awesome. But from from a professional side of things, how have you found it? Is it you know, compared to other seasons, and, and with it being your last season, was it was it a good season to end on? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know it was going to be my last season literally until Portugal. Um, 
that that's the first thing to put out there. So it was never ever at any point during the year kind of a swan song. I never really looked at it like that. I think the only thing the season was missing was a final round showdown. Really, I mean, yeah, everything that literally had everything. The storylines on and off the circuit all year. The shocks each time we turned up to a MotoGP round. The different stories that were coming out. The only thing it was really missing was like a. A title decider on the on the final day, really, to make it one of the best ever. But even so, I think that with the array of different riders on the podium, um, you know, a multitude of different winners, new people appearing, the the, the new generation, the new era, um, Yamaha kind of going back to to the <laughs> excited about that. Uh, Yamaha getting back to the top as well and, and there's just so many different angles of this year's championship that you could look at and speak about forever. Um, so yeah, I think it was a phenomenal world championship year. It really, really was. It just had just about everything. What a year for them to film a documentary. Yeah, True. definitely. It's been, a good, it's been a good first one to have for, for kind of the for Amazon, is it? It's going to be a it's going to yeah. be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On that, I want to ask you, Steve, if you were to pick kind of more so an overlooked highlight of the year, like if you would pick one moment of the year that you think has kind of been pushed to one side that is your personal favorite moment of this GP season, what would it be? Um, I mean, personally, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but you hosting the Rossi thing is like... Yeah. You know that that is. I mean, the, the with where there was so much going on this year that it was just sometimes impossible to take. I mean, that day for me was um, was quite something because I didn't know um, up until minutes before the the the, the uh, press conference had started whether or not he was going to retire. Um. We had been told that there was an announcement and you could kind of make your own assumptions and everybody, I think, thought he would um, retire. Um, But we got into the press conference room and there was just a certain feeling about it. Um, There was an ambience that I'd never felt before. And then when I saw people like Uccio walking in and all his team, I thought he's retiring, 100% he's retiring. Then Davide Tadotsi and Paolo Giubatti walked in and I thought, oh my goodness, what's happening here? Is there a U-turn? Um, but to kind of be hosting the announcement of his retirement and then subsequently um, his actually his actual retirement um, press conference for me is something that I will never, ever forget because the era I watched was Rossi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before, it's a really weird thing because when I, as a fan watching at home, I was all Rossi. I loved watching Rossi so, so much. Um, but when you get into it and you're commentating on it, you do just take on this natural kind of neutral um, perspective of everything. And you don't really look at them in the same way again. Whereas this year with the retirement, it was almost like it was a, a little dip into my past and my heart. Um, so it, it meant an awful lot. So yeah, I, I would agree with that, to be honest. That was... I wouldn't say it was overshadowed, but given what happened over the whole course of the year, um, I'll never, ever forget 
the that those press conferences. There's there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, jokes like no jokes included. Genuinely, I when I was watching that, I was yeah, I was so jealous of the fact that like you were doing that. But I, I was again. You sort of I don't know when again when Ucho and like you know all of it all the VR forty six tribe sort of came in. For me, that's when the penny dropped as well. I was like, okay, yeah, this this is it, and only ever having known rossi like when i grew up as as long as far back as i can remember it was like from my dad it was you know this is this is your guy you know rossi's your guy and again when that press conference happened all i could do was sort of like recycle from the very start when rossi started and go through all like you know you go back to like south africa 2004 you go back to the the uh, corkscrew moment with stoner barcelona with lorenzo so that being said, you saying you're a complete Rossi fan because Fran did actually allude to the same thing in saying she was a big Lorenzo fan, but when she got into commentary, it sort of became neutral. But with you being the Rossi guy, I want to know your your top Rossi moment in that sense. <laughs> I can't let you go without without answering that one. Um, I mean, the, the Velcom moment was incredible. There, there is no doubt um, about that. It was just um, an iconic moment. Um, for, for me, it has to be a selfish moment because when I got the opportunity to commentate on MotoGP for the first time with Eurosport, Rossi had just been through the Ducati years and I got the chance to commentate on um, Assen, his first year back with uh, Yamaha, I think it was 2013. That was his first win back with the Yeah, year, wasn't it? and that was when Lorenzo was injured. Um, he'd injured himself earlier that weekend. Collarbone, yeah. Yeah, and I thought to myself at that time, because I think everyone even thought at that time, Rossi's not got many years left racing. And I thought, if I get a chance to commentate on a Rossi win, I'm, my life is made. I mean, it's just a <laughs> moment. Um, and he won that race. And I thought that would... I genuinely thought I'd commentated on the last win of Valentino. I never thought that, like, literally, you know, uh, eight years on, we'd still be commentating on him and he'd have a chance at a championship as he did a couple of years later. So that was like a, that was one of my favorite moments ever. I remember coming home from that weekend in Assen, just feeling like I'd done everything I could ever do. Um, just <laughs> you do this... not understand the jealousy that is brewing <laughs> through my body right now. But you know, so the thing sick. is, well, it's so, so strange because there's a going from a being a, to then commentating things do change quite a lot in terms of your perception um you know that you do just take on a completely different stance on stuff yeah I, i'm guessing with that like the 2015 obviously the battle between him and marquez and and lorenzo uh, as a brossi fan but also having to be neutral how how was that like especially the final race how how did you go about that how did, did you literally put all your all of it in the back of your mind, like the. Lucky, any... on that. I was really lucky. I was at home watching that, mm. so I didn't mm. have to on that. I didn't like. <laughs> I didn't like that round at all for an awful lot of reasons because yeah. bitterly disappointed in so many ways. Um, but from there, it it made. I think I knew I was going to be doing MotoGP the very next year. 
and from there it almost made it easier for me to kind of go in with a neutral perspective yeah. um, the thing is is that as much as you might admire one rider maybe more than others you have an awful lot of respect for others as well and it's not until you get to work with them and that you suddenly realize the characters that are completely different when you're working with them to what they might be portrayed as from a TV screen. It is unbelievable. Um, so I found that out pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, 2015, oh, the less said about that, the better, I think, from my perspective. I, I second that as well, yeah. <laughs> So uh, with this past season, putting aside the Rossi retirement, putting aside Fabio's first championship, what was your standout moment from the past season? You're talking more on track, aren't you? Like, Yeah, because like mean... we in, in our last episode, we had we handed out some awards and we had like our biggest moment. And I think we put it down to uh, Brad Bender. Oh, the last lap or the yeah the last couple laps I in actually, austria i can hear steve commentating on that in my head when when you say that i can hear you being mm -hmm. like, what the hell what? truly truly remarkable um and i don't i think because of everything else that was going on at the time with maverick with everything that's going on with rossi's announcements and stuff like that um that race probably has to go down as one of the most dramatic and seen races I think I've ever seen in MotoGP history. That was, it was incredible. Especially was when I saw Rossi fared. There was oh. there was that moment where Rossi was there and I thought, this is it. All Because most people, myself, all I wanted was them to get that 200 podium. And I thought, if, if this is the mm -hmm. way... If that would have happened on that day, I, I think I'd have probably just left the commentary box. Um, <laughs> It was an incredible moment. I couldn't believe what we were what what we were witnessing. To be honest with you, I mean, it was all I could do. Not, I mean, I don't know. You train yourself not to sort of swear in a commentary box. Um, it was all I could do not to swear because I was what I couldn't believe I was watching uh, unfold in front of us. It was incredible, in an absolutely incredible moment. Um, I was. I think everybody, to be honest, was gunning for him to win. I can't imagine there was anybody in the world. He was watching that with Brad Binder on slick tyres in soaking wet conditions, thinking, oh, I hope he crashes. Everyone must have been thinking, come on, this is this is some iconic victory right here. Especially when you saw Banyaya um, and that yeah, kind of yeah. flying through on Inters and you thought, can he make it? Can he do it? it and yeah. I, I would have hated to see social media if Banyaya would have passed him like into the last corner. Because it would have been like, yeah, the stuff with F1 recently where it's like, well, you should have just let him win. Like, he's doing yeah. this. Like, Benyaya, like, let off at the line. Let him have this. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I, I was a bit worried initially about, because he was running off circuit, whether or not there were going to be any kind of interjections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did They did penalise him, though, didn't they? Because he, he, he ran off for the, the last corner. And I How thought if, if that happens and they actually do drop him to second... Mm -hmm. I don't even want to go near 50,000 miles of Twitter. Like, nowhere near it. No, no, no. 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 But, yeah, I, that, I, that, it was that a, race was sick. That was the most, that was the biggest standout moment, without a shadow of a doubt. That and the fact that, um, I, I have to say, Mark's win back at Saxon Ring, despite the fact, yep. you know, he was 
obviously so good there, given everything that has happened. Um, the, mm -hmm. Everything that win was something pretty special, and not and I, I I will remember that race for a long time. Did um did anyone in like in the MotoGP sphere think he would get three wins in this season? Was it three uh, or two? It was three, wasn't it? Were a few people in the paddock. I, I I don't know whether I think because Mark is so good. I think there were a lot of people who were just saying, "Oh yeah, he'll definitely get the wins," just so that they could perhaps be the people that could say he was going to get the wins. Or just yeah. three, yeah, to get three. three. Um, I'm, I don't know. I I personally um did not think he would get three wins. I did not think he'd get three wins. And I think that what he has proved this year is that even a 80% fit Mark Marquez can win the world championship. If he can complete all the races, um, they've got trouble. Um, he is an incredible talent, just an incredible talent. Um, and I really, really, really hope that he can, I don't, I don't genuinely, I don't think he will ever get back to 100% fitness. I think it's, I think it's bad. It looks mm. bad. Uh, well, they're not good, but even if he can get back up to the form he was showing before he went out with the eye injury, that yeah. would be to win a world championship again, in my opinion. So, is that what you're? Is that the kind of the thing you're looking most looking forward to for next season? Is that what you're keeping your eye on the most? Is kind of Mark's form, or have you got something else you're looking at more keenly? Um, I think that. The guys at the top, I mean, the stats don't tell lies. I think that um, Quattararo, Banyaya um, will all be there with Mir, depending on what Suzuki roll out. Um, Mir is a class act, but Suzuki are going to have to wheel out a weapon because yeah. I really do think that he might be tempted away, if not. I think he is. We've said uh, the same. And I, I think that beyond that, Mark, is definitely in with them. And I think it would be magnificent to see those guys going at it um, because it's kind of the new generation with, with Mark. And then there's a few other riders that you just can't really predict what they're going to do. Um, I think silly season next season will be very, very silly. It's going to be, mm -hmm. it's going to be ridiculous. But I do think that, you know, you don't know what you're going to get with Miller, uh, but he's going to mm -hmm. have a lot more consistent if he wants to fight for the world championship. I think that Martin is a major, major dark horse if he's fit. Um, and I, I genuinely, if there was going to be um, an independent world champion, he'd be the one that stands yeah. out. Um, yeah. Rins is just like, I mean, <laughs> day he gets out of bed, uh, what side of bed, but he gets out. <laughs> of bed. Um, and, and also KTM. You know, I do think that Binder and Miguel are are fantastic riders, but they have got some work to do um, to kind of regularly battle for, for podium. I just think that the great thing about next year is that there's just across the grid, there is no weakness. No, there's so many unknowns, but... Hands out and you think, well, you know, there's, there's, it's just, it, they're all so, so strong. Um, so I think there's going to be an awful lot of unhappy riders next year. <laughs> Well, there's only so many that can. There's only ten that can finish in the top ten, isn't there? And there's yeah. more than ten title yeah. challenges in a way yeah. if you list them all out. So, yeah, yeah. Um, just wrapping things up, Steve. And you don't have to 
don't don't think too highly of us because I don't have Valentino Rossi's phone number. But who do you who are you passing the baton on to recommend for our next guest? I want to I want to know who you think we should have on next. Who's a character in the paddock that we should definitely get on? Um, whoa. are you talking about like uh, non-riders or anyone? I mean, even if it is a rider, that is making our job a lot harder. But listen, <laughs> yeah. if you if you've got contact, Steve, then you know. I mean, listen. If if you if you're getting Jack Miller, you're in for a great time. <laughs> okay, well that's the that that can be the the yeah that's our, top uh, tier. I mean, what you think is what you get. He is a phenomenal guy on and off circuit. There is no act. He is uh, absolutely fantastic. As for as uh, off the track, ah, oh, there are loads of characters that you could that you could speak to for sure. I mean, goodness me, let me think now. It depends on what angle you want to go in with. I mean, if you want to. Um, I know that um, you'd be able to get Simon Crapar in, no problem. And Simon's a great guy. Um, and you could talk about barbecues for about two hours if you wanted. <laughs> um, I, I, there's so many. I, I'm going to miss so many people. And there's so many people with loads of backlogs of stories that I just don't know who. That, there's no one that really sort of stands out because I just there's so many good people um, to speak to. Let me think about that. I'll have to give you How a about if I said to you, I put a gun to your head and say, you've got to go for a pint with three people that are non-riders from the GP paddock. Who are you picking? <laughs> uh, you, do you realise I'd probably get... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's very difficult. Judge... I'm, I'm going to go with the easy answer here because... <clears throat> Actually, no, there is no easy answer. Um, I was going to say, uh, if you don't by pick your Instagram people... Post. Yeah, I was gonna say you're gonna judge like, by your Amy Instagram post. It's probably gonna be like Bert, uh, Crayfar, and Simon Peterson. I would say that uh, those guys are up there, but I'm not gonna pick. I'm not gonna pick three. I'm not because the thing is, <laughs> like I spoke with um, with Matt and Fran. Um, we get along so so well, and let's not forget Amy. Me and Amy mm-hmm. are like. We have been like brother and sister in the paddock for the last uh, few years. And so um, she'd be definitely top of the tree to catch up with for a drink as well, because I've not seen her in a while and I miss her. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not going down that road. You're going <laughs> to, there's other, so Neil Morrison is also a fantastic laugh, honestly, a great, great guy. Um, he might mess with your sounds a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> adjust that uh but neil is you know don't be fooled by the deep voice he's got a fantastic sense of humor and the guy honestly is his you know when we were talking about julian Ryder, his encyclopedic knowledge of moto gp is insane yeah. insane well there we go well that's definitely some names now we gotta try to make it happen uh but steve we wanted to say thank you um to listeners if you have a little kid in your life be sure to go pick up steve's book which i just wanted to ask steve uh your book is called this leopard is so rude does this leopard look rude to you god damn it my fucking laptop (laughs) that was my that was my daughter in 2018 she went as a leopard 
for <laughs> Halloween. So when I hit, we, when I knew we were having you on, I'm like, I gotta ask him this as a joke. <laughs> no, but, I, I, that leopard is so rude. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, the out. To be honest, with I think you, that the leopard in that picture is very rude. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the book is called That Leopard Is So Rude, and yeah, I mean, you can you can get it anywhere. I mean, any anyone can find it. So it's. It's all good, but yeah, you'll. I, I'm. I'm definitely gonna stay in touch, and I can't say what I'm doing next year, but I'll, I'll be back in. Uh, I'm hoping to be loosely involved with MotoGP at some point in the near future, even if it's not next year. Maybe we can catch up and uh, let the world know what you're actually doing, just so that people don't think that you've actually gone forever, like, uh, after, like that yeah. was alluding to earlier. <laughs> yeah, I'm not like literally. <laughs> off the face of the earth <laughs> steve's hey. gonna be the will buxton of moto gp <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think so i don't think so <laughs> but steve thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure thing is um i just wanted to ask whether or not you checked the final score of uh, I've, yeah I've I, I was i had it on my laptop as it, as we were going i kept like looking over and update it and i'm like fuck Misery. Yeah. <laughs> could be worse, Matt. Hey, it could be worse. You could, you could lose every game you ever compete in, like my team. So you know, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, yeah Derby. Derby. Oh, just the pronunciation yep. of an American saying that name is just yeah, Derby. Ooh. Yeah. Let's not go there, Steve. We've it's been it's been great podcast so far. Let's not go down <laughs> that route. I've already got. A lead uh, supporter that listens to this podcast every time we upload, and he ribs me enough. So I don't need any more, you know, <laughs> I don't need any more of a following of the ribbing me of who I support in football because it's bad <laughs> enough as it is. Josh is silent in Hull. Yeah, Hull City for me. So, well, I still, I still remember the 7 0 drubbing you gave us like three years ago. That's still, still quite a. Yeah, I remember that game. I was watching that live. Um... <laughs> Yeah, just to rub salt in the wound. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. I, I won't go any further with football. It's fine. <laughs> hey, guys, keep right. up the good work um, next year, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch up at some point soon, for sure. All right. Thank you very much. You have a good evening. Take care, guys. Yeah, so again, thanks, Steve, for coming on. Um, yeah, this is, we're recording this one a couple of days before Christmas, so for everyone out there, have a happy holidays, be safe, take care of one another, and with that, keep the throttle pinned.